I'm honored to be here. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can pull them out. If you got your notepads, you're going to need them tonight. Um, it might be helpful if you have your phone out because I have a lot of slides and sometimes you can't write fast enough and I'm a fast talker when I preach. So sometimes, if you need me to slow down, just like stand up and be like, slow down. Okay, maybe don't. If I'm in a rhythm, don't stop me. But I'm just, you get the point. Like, if you get your phone out, you can take a picture of the slides. Um, you know, the scriptures are... Um, a beautiful, a beautiful gift from God. Um, he gave us his book, not just to know information, but to know him, the author. And the Bible is an interesting book because it's, it's unique. It's unique in its claims, it's unique in its content, and it's unique in its author. And so there's a saying that I really love, and it's from uh, uh, an ancient church father named Gregory the Great. And and this is the Bible is, is, so the Bible is shallow enough that an infant can swim, but deep enough that an elephant will drown. So get that imagery in your head. It's simple enough that anyone can understand it, but it's deep enough that the, the, the wisest and most intellectual and the most intelligent men have devoted their whole lives and still they they don't even scratch the surface of the depths of God's wisdom. And tonight I want to give you really four reasons why I build my life on the Bible. Four reasons. Now this is going to be a little bit different message than our style of, of teaching that I normally do. It's going to be a little bit more like, um, argu- not argumentative. I'm going, to, I'm going to try to persuade you of why you should trust the Bible, okay? I'm going to try to persuade you from my own reasoning, why I build my life on the Bible. And it's not going to be because I told you so. I'm going to give you good reasons that you should believe the Bible. And what I've realized in my life is that reading the Bible is similar to like working out. Okay? How many of you are like, um, you have a commitment like next week you're going to start working out? You know what I'm talking about? Like the people that are like, next week, like I'm going to get back in the gym, you know, and then you just never do it. And the thing is, is like once you start going into the rhythm, once you get into like week two, like week three, and you're no longer like literally, in, like you're no longer like crippled after you like do bench presses for a week. You know what I'm talking about? You do bench presses, you're like walking around like this. You're like, oh. Or you do triceps is the worst. Oh my gosh. You do triceps and then someone like touches you and you're like, don't touch me. My triceps hurt so bad. But once you get through a little bit of the clunkiness in the, the clunkiness of like the gym, then you actually start craving it, right? Like you start being like, man, like I need the gym. Like I need that, that blood flow. I need that adrenaline pump. I need that exercise. And the scriptures are similar. Sometimes it's so hard to get started. It's so hard to get disciplined. It's so hard to like get in it. And, and, but what I found is that the, the more I read it, the more I love it. Yeah. The more I consume it, the hungrier I get. And I just want to encourage you to, to, to start small, if it's audio, just listening to it on your way to work or on your way to school, like, just don't, don't, try to, don't try to consume it all in one setting. Just take bits and pieces. And I, I've always been of the mind that it, if you just get like one verse, that's all you need. <laughs> like start with one verse, put it in your pocket and just carry it throughout the day. Be like, Lord, just, I, this is my verse for today. I'm going I'm to think about it and it's one verse. So, but I, these four reasons why I build my life on the Bible. Um, I guess to start, actually, it'd be better to start with Matthew 7, and it's Jesus' words, and it says, everyone 
then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had not been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So the reason we build our lives on the scriptures I would say from a very elementary standpoint would be because Jesus told us to. He told us to. That should be enough for most of us, but in a world of skepticism, of deconstruction, in a world of doubters, and in a world of, we're in an anti-Christian culture, sometimes it's helpful to have a little bit more than just Jesus told me so. So I'm going to offer four reasons. Here are the four reasons. They're going to be up on the screen. Number one is the witness of the Holy Spirit to the individual. Two is the claims of the Bible itself. Three, the prophetic accuracy of the Bible. And four is the archaeological evidence from biblical manuscripts. And so I'm going to break these down piece by piece, but these are the four reasons that we'll talk about today. There are more reasons um, than these four, um, but these are the ones that I think that I prepared to offer you tonight. Um, let's start off with the witness of the Holy Spirit to the individual. What does that mean? The witness of the Holy Spirit to the individual is the main reason why I build my life on the scriptures. So John, 20, John 10, this is where I'm talking about, like sometimes y'all need to get the pictures out because y'all are writing, right? Sometimes just take the picture and look at it later, right? So in John 10, 27, it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So there's this mystical, mysterious reality when it comes to the scriptures that you actually need God's help in order to believe that the scriptures are from God. That when you need Jesus in order to believe Jesus' words, okay? It's the witness of the Holy Spirit. You need to hear his voice. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 2. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So the spirit of God is given to us so that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So the spirit is required in order to understand the scriptures, but furthermore, that as we get to know God and come to him with humility, he convinces us that the Bible is in fact God's word. It's authoritative. And this is what it says in 1 Corinthians 2, two verses later, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying, and now what you gotta understand about the Corinthians church is that it was a very it was an intellectual center. There were Greek philosophers, there were all of these um, all of these intellectuals who would gather and they would they would practice their their speech and persuasive speech, they would study um, the antiquity or the, the writings of the ancient philosophers and they were very naturally intellectual people and Paul, what Paul is saying is all of those intellectual giants of our culture are fools and they look at Christians and they say, you are fools but the wisdom of man 
is foolishness to God. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying is that even when the smartest, most successful, the best looking people in your culture criticize the Bible, realize that they themselves are blind. Don't let people who do not love God convince you that God's word is not God's word. Why would we listen to someone who does not love God? Why would we listen to a celebrity who is dabbling in witchcraft? Why would we listen to athletes who are promiscuous, sleep around, have no morality or ethics? Why would we listen to a culture of philosophers who are their own gods? They are the fools. This is Paul saying, because the natural person looks at the Bible and says, who would base their life on a book that was written by a bunch of archaic barbarians who didn't have iPhones? And the reality is, is that God, was, as we'll see later today, he is the author of this book. He guided and directed the, the, the authors to write the things they did. He did it with his sovereign hand to ensure the accuracy and the power that it would carry forever. So the natural person doesn't accept it. And, and it made me think of like all these, some of these cultural figures that we have, like Neil deGrasse Tyson. You guys know who that is? He's like a scientist. He's a very popular, almost like a popular scientist who goes on a bunch of podcasts and criticizes Christians and criticizes the Bible. You have Sam Harris, who's a, a very famous intellectual atheist who comes and says and criticizes and, and calls and, and, and critiques the Bible in a way that proves his own foolishness. You have guys like Joe Rogan who will go on his podcast and who will criticize the Christian faith and while he has no understanding of the faith at all. He, he, he talks about Christians like he understands and yet he doesn't know the basics of an argument. Now, I have hope for Joe Rogan because he seems to be bringing on some guests who are opening up his mind to Christianity, but all I'm saying is, is I'm not mad at these guys. I pray for these guys, but I'm just saying is like, don't be so naive to think that these people are smarter than God and have more wisdom than the scriptures. Because the natural person, guys, their wisdom is gonna fade in about 15 years or less, maybe six months. But the word of the Lord endures forever. So there's this book so it's the witness of the Holy Spirit to the individual. And so there's this book that I, that I read actually in college. It's called The Year of Living Biblically. Okay? So this, this unbelieving man spends a year following all of the Old Testament. I don't recommend the book, actually. I, I had to read it for college. So he like grows his hair, eats all the food that the Israelites ate, and he does all the feasts, and he does all the things. He, grew, you know, he sees his beard and dresses like them and doesn't wear mixed fabrics and he's, he's trying to prove a point that Christianity is stupid. But the crazy thing is, is that anyone who understands the scriptures for what they are can see that this is foolish and it's not proving any point. Because there's this, there's this um, principle about the scriptural, scripture interpretation. This is really important. It's not gonna be on the screen, but if you're writing down, write this down. 
It's important when you're understanding the scriptures and you're coming against skeptics like these people in your family or at school or wherever, is that when they pull up Old Testament stuff and they're like, well, why don't you follow this command? Or why don't you follow this command? And why don't you do this anymore? And you, you're, you're so selective. You pick and choose what you want to follow. You don't actually follow the whole Bible. That's what the skeptics will say. But the reality about the scripture is that in order to understand it properly, we let scripture interpret scripture. So where one area of scripture is maybe uh, foggy, gray, maybe unclear, we let other scriptures interpret the unclear scriptures. Does that make sense? For example, you can look at a a passage in, in John where it says that, hate your mother and father. Jesus says this. He says, you need to hate your mother and father. Some people might like, oh my gosh, like this book is so silly. Hate your mother and father, like hate them, forsake them. So that might not be, that might be unclear for some people. I'll go to a more clear passage multiple times in the New Testament, but also in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. So that's clear. So let's go back to the one about hate and let's try to understand what it's saying. Oh, the more that we look into it, we see, oh, Jesus isn't saying to hate them. He's saying, in comparison with your love for God, it should look like you hate everything else. Okay, that makes sense, right? So this guy says, no, we're just gonna follow everything literally to the T and it's, it's not the way that we read the Bible, actually. That's not the way that Jesus read the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures. It's not the way that Paul was intending us to understand the New Testament scriptures. And it's not the way that any of the Christians throughout the last 2,000 years have understood the scriptures. So I'm giving you some fuel, not to get into arguments, but just to realize like the natural person isn't as wise as they think. And I'll say this thing. It's a lot easier to tear down than it is to build up. It's a lot easier just to say the Bible's stupid than it is to have their own worldview that makes sense. And so don't let critics come in and make you deconstruct or or question your faith. Anyway, the witness of the Holy Spirit. Next little point here. So the Holy Spirit, this is a really, it's a simple point, but it's actually very profound. The Holy Spirit convinces us of of the Bible's divine authorship as we read the scriptures. So, in Christian culture, West Michigan, you'd be like, yeah, the Bible's the word of God. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. But you won't start believing it until you start reading it. It's actually as you enter the pages of the book that when you meet the author, you start believing that it's divine. That its authorship is inspired not by man, but it's inspired by a creator, a personal, eternal God who is the God of love and the God of the entire universe. And so it's when we enter into the book that the Spirit starts convincing us of our need for it. So the way, the way that we, you, you talk about this, really, in, when you read any book, as, you, as, you're, as you're thinking about reading any book, before you start criticizing the book, you need to give yourself to the author. Like, what are you trying to say? I'm not going to come with judgments. I'm going to come and I'm going to take the book as for what it is instead of coming in with judgments. And that's what we do with the Bible. We, 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 we take our judgments and we say, God, what is it saying? Help me understand. And as you do that, the Spirit convinces you that it's divine, that its authorship is inspired by God. We see this actually in the story of the road to Emmaus. Jesus is resurrected and he, and he, and he meets two of his followers on the road and he chats with them. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. And it says he sits down with them and he shows them 
and teaches them all about the Old Testament and about all how the whole Old Testament pointed to Christ. And there's a verse within that. It's not on the screen. It might be actually. Hold on. Yeah, it's in the next slide. It's in Luke 24. They said this to each other, the two men on the road to Emmaus. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And this is what happens to us when we read it. Do our hearts not burn? When you start reading with humility and seriousness, your hearts start to burn because you start to see that they're all, that they're alive, that they're personal, and that God is the one who has given us this book to make us wise for salvation and to draw us to himself. The personal God who is revealed in Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for the sins of humanity and rose from the dead so that you can live forever never fearing death ever again. I'm going to skip that other verse for time's sake. I'm going to make a little note here. I'm going to put my email on the screen. Um, tonight, I, I wanted to, I didn't have time for it. If you would like more information about how the Bible was actually put together, okay? If you ever wondered, like, who sat down and decided, like, what's in and what's not? If you want more for that interests you, Take a picture of my email, send me an email, and I will send you. I have one article and I have one book. It's not going to be simple. If you want to understand these things, you've got to put work into it. But I'll give you one article or one book that you can, shoot, that you can pick up on your own that will help you start to understand how the Bible is actually formed. So that when you have these questions, you don't have to feel stupid, but you also don't have to doubt. You can understand that they are, there is legitimate scholarship, legitimate um, confidence that we can have that this actually is God's message, his revealed word to humanity. Okay? So keep going. The second point. So the first was the witness of the Holy Spirit to the individual. Second is the claims of the Bible itself. The claims. So when you start reading the Bible, you'll start reading things, and the Bible makes claims about itself. Okay? It, it says things about itself. And if you're going to take the Bible seriously, then you have to take it for what it is. What does it describe itself as? 2 Timothy 3 says this, all scripture is breathed out by God. <laughs> so all scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, is breathed out by God. All 66 books, everything in them, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What does this mean? Profitable for what? Teaching. So it's going to teach you. If it's breathed out by God, creator, it's authoritative. And if it's profitable for teaching, it means that we need to learn. If it's profitable for reproof and correction, that means that we must obey it. And if it's for training, it's for instruction, which we ought to obey. And so really, he's making a claim. The New Testament, in the bottom there, claims the scriptures are inspired by God. That's the first claim. Next slide. The New Testament claims the Old Testament scriptures are inspired by God. So we'll read in Psalm 95. Here's a, a, a psalm from David. It says, Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in uh, Meribah, as you did that day in Massa in the wilderness. Now, we flip to Hebrews. 
It's unknown who the author of Hebrews is. It's, 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 I believe it's Paul. But so as the Holy Spirit says. So in Psalm 95, it's David. And there's no Holy Spirit. But the author of Hebrews says, the Holy Spirit said this. Does this make sense? And it's the same exact, it's a, it's a quotation from the Old Testament brought into the New Testament. And the claim of the author is, the Holy Spirit wrote this. Now, the Holy Spirit didn't come down with an ink pen and, and write it. But as we'll see, he guided the authors of the Bible. He guided them. And so the New Testament claims that the Old Testament was inspired by God. It's a claim. Second, New Testament affirms the Old Testament is inspired by God. Second Peter 2.21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy, this would be considered Old Testament prophecy that came past in the New Testament, specifically in Christ, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, underlined here, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the New Testament claims that the Old Testament was inspired and written by God. Okay, next point. Am I boring you? Am I boring you? Okay. You're locked in? So, here's a scripture from 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. So I want to focus on the verse 18. For the scripture says, underlined, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves its wages. Okay, I underlined the wrong part here. The underlined part should be the laborer deserves his wages, okay? So just, that's a mistake on my part. So we look here, 1 Timothy 5 says, as the scripture says. That scripture is from Luke So the author of Timothy, who is Paul, claims that Luke, who wrote the book of Luke, is writing scripture. Okay? And and so it says in Luke 10, 7, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. So Paul claims what Luke wrote is scripture. And so the New Testament, that bottom in the red, affirms that the New Testament is inspired by God. So remember, why do I believe? Because the Bible claims this. So this is a reason I build my life on it. So I've, I've looked at the claims, I've prayed through, I've, I've tested the claims, and I have concluded, I can't conclude this for you, but I have concluded that these claims are true, that they're reasonable, and that over the course of human history, they have proven to be true. Let's keep going. The next point, claims of the Bible. So the first is, uh, the first two from the claims were that the, the New Testament claims the Old Testament is scripture and that the New Testament claims that the New Testament is scripture. Now, 2 Timothy, this claim is about the scriptures. This is actually right before 2, 2 Timothy 3.16, which is the Bible is inspired by God, breathed out by God. It's two, vis- two verses before. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and, firmly, and have firmly believed knowing from what you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Sacred writings would be considered the Old Testament scriptures, okay? The Old Testament scriptures. This is the claim from Paul, that the Old Testament scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So what's the claim? The claim is 
that what's included in here in the Old Testament and the New Testament is the only way that you can know how to be saved. It makes you wise. That means without this, now, it doesn't mean that someone needs the Bible to read it in order to be saved, but what it is saying is that this is the barometer, the standard, the standard that we all set ourselves up to, we build our life upon, and if anyone comes contradicting what was said to make us wise for salvation, we condemn it and call it heresy. We call it false and untrue. Because the scriptures make us wise for salvation. If some, um, someone were to come claiming another gospel, even if an angel came and claimed another good news of, of how you can be saved, like the Mormons, like the Jehovah's Witness, who claim other ways that you can be saved, we say false and untrue. But they might say, I had an encounter. I had a, I had a prayerful encounter. Listen, you can have prayerful encounter with lots of spirits. But the devil disguises his followers as angels of light to draw people in so that they'll be demonized. And the only way that you can be sure that you are locked in with God is being locked in with his word. Because it makes us wise for salvation. It makes us wise. We read about how in Genesis 1, that God created everything good. We read about in Genesis 2 and 3 about how Adam and Eve, they, they sinned and fallen short. And we read about how sin was imputed and given to all of mankind. We read about how God made a covenant to Abraham. And he made this covenant that through your seed, there would come one who would crush the... the that was actually the to Abraham, but he made a covenant to Abraham that through his seed all the nations of the world would be blessed. He made a covenant with, with Moses. He made a covenant with David and he said, from your line, the Messiah will come and lo and behold, at the perfect time, Christ came fulfilling all the prophecies of the Old Testament and he was the, he was the Moses. He was the deliverer. He was the Joshua. He was the son of Abraham. He fulfilled all the prophecies and he did exactly what Genesis said he was gonna do. He was gonna crush the head of the serpent and destroy sin forever, and he would, he would make a message. He would declare good news to the poor. He would declare good news, freedom for all, freedom to the captives, and he would say this thing. He would say this message, that anyone who calls on my name can be saved. That's all in the, it's the storyline of the Bible, and that's what makes us wise for salvation. Next point. Next claim. We gotta roll. You guys ready to go? Get your notes out, because we gotta roll. The scriptures are authoritative. I'm just going to focus on 1 John 5, 3. This is the claim. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Now, they are the revelation of God's message and his good news so that we can be saved, forgiven, go to heaven and have communion with God. But they are also authoritative as in they are commands in which we are to live by. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, when you love Jesus, his commandments are not burdensome because you know this one thing, that God wants your, has your best interest in mind and that following Jesus is the best life you could ever live. To not look at porn is a good thing. To not sleep around and have sexual intercourse before marriage, for your flesh might crave it, but when you look down the line 40 years, you're going to be like, God, you're keeping me from so much pain. 
when he tells you not to gossip, it's because he knows that you're destroying relationships and he wants your relationships to thrive. Now, they still are authoritative though. And that, here's the, the phrase that I want to leave you with. It's kind of a harsh one. Disobeying the scriptures equals disobeying God. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 14. The things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Paul believed that what he was writing was authoritative to the churches that he was writing to. That he was not speaking on his own, his own authority, but he was speaking on behalf of God. So to disobey, they are authoritative. This is the claims of the Bible. And what I have noticed is that people who follow the Bible live better lives. People who don't go to church live better lives because there are a lot of Christians who don't obey the Bible. A lot of people who go to church and don't obey the Bible. But I have noticed people who follow Jesus and his word are happier. <laughs> they have better relationships. They have better marriages. They, 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 they're, they're more peaceful. And so the witness that I have is that obeying the scriptures leads to the best life possible. But also disobeying the scriptures it doesn't bring any sort of curse, but it brings the penalty of disobeying God, which is remove his covering from your life, which brings hell on earth, broken relationships, turmoil, confusion, lack of peace. Now, I could go on here, and there's more to speak, don't, but I, it's, the Bible is authoritative, that's my point. So next, I want to zip through these points. The third is prophetic accuracy. So the third reason. So the first, like I said, witness of the Holy Spirit to the individual. Second is the claims of the Bible. The third is the prophetic accuracy. I'm just going to zip through three. There's, there's like literally an endless amount, but I'm going to say three that I think are important, and I'll describe how, why they're convi they've convinced me that the Bible is the word of God and that I should build my life on it. Isaiah 7, therefore the Lord himself, this is Isaiah 7, 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years. Rewind to 1300 and then somebody saying, in the year 2002, a little device with an apple with a bite out of it, signifying Adam and Eve, mind blown for some of you. Anyway, sorry, that's a conspiracy. Sorry, not going to get into it. <laughs> in the year 1300, prophesying that there would be a little device that you could have that would have this thing called the internet that you could call and take pictures. And they'd be like, what are pictures? In the year 1300, prophesying that the iPhone would come. You'd be like, that's pretty impressive. So 700 years before Christ is born, Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Prophesied 700 years. Micah 5.2, but you, about 400 years, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. 400 years prophesying that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. 400 years. Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Prophesying that Jesus would go into Egypt when he was young. So, second Major prophecy, I don't even have time, it's, it's the full chapter. 
Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant uh, prophecy of Jesus. And what we see in Isaiah 3 is it prophesies the type of death he would die. He would prophesize the nature of his, his suffering. And that one thing, this is 700 years before Christ would die. This goes against every um, natural thought that a Jew would have. The Jew thought the Messiah would come as a victor and a conquering king. And yet Isaiah, through the Spirit, prophesied and saw a picture of the Christ, the Messiah, who would be a suffering servant. 700 years before he comes. Prophetic accuracy, kind of point two, is the, is the amount of accuracy in Israel's history. Here are a few examples. In, in Jeremiah 25, it was prophesied that Babylon will rule over Judah for 70 years. It just so happened that came to pass. About 70 years before it happened. There, it was prophesied in Isaiah 45 that Babylon's gates will be opened for Cyrus. This happened 30 years before it actually happened. It prophesied in Nahum that Nineveh would be destroyed. And basically the whole Old Testament is covered with prophetic um, utterances from prophets that came to pass 30, 50, 120, sometimes 490 years after it was prophesied to the year it would happen. That just has convinced me that the Bible is indeed the word of God. The last, which is, I would say, the least persuasive that should move us the least amount, but I think is helpful in conversation sometimes, is archaeological evidence from biblical manuscripts. So I'm just going to give you one Literally, there's so much evidence for this, guys. Like, so much evidence. I'm going to give you one piece that has given me so much, so much confidence in the scriptures. Now, the Spirit is the one who gives me confidence, but this scientific discovery through archaeology has just, ah, it's just been a, it's been a wind in my sails. For all the scientific atheists who claim the Bible is inaccurate, I go, what about this one? Sorry, I don't want to win an argument. Okay. So there are, this is, I'm sorry, I'll give you the, the site from this. This is from um, Dr. James White Ministries, okay? Dr. James White. There are over 5,700 cataloged manuscripts. A manuscript would be a, a, an archaeological discovery, a, an old piece of writing of scripture, okay? Manuscript. There are 5,700 catalog manuscripts in the New Testament. In those manuscripts, there are over 2 million pages of documents. Okay, everyone say 2 million. In those 2 million pages, there are 1,500 to 2,000 variances. So, let me break this down. So, you would have, for example, the book of Jeremiah. You would have, let's call it, um, 100 manuscripts dating from 700 to 900 to 1,300. They have all these manuscripts of Jeremiah. Okay, 100 of them. And then you have all these manuscripts of Genesis. Let's say we have 70 of them, okay? And then you have all these. There's 5,700 of them, okay? So they, the way that they verify if something's accurate is they look at the consistency, okay? So they look at the manuscript of Jeremiah from 700 and they compare it to the manuscript of Jeremiah from 1,300. Does this make sense? So there, if there's a lot of overlap, they're going, oh, wow, this is very accurate. This is, this is almost miraculous, so this is what they found, that there are 1,500 to 2,000 variances across the different manuscripts that they found. And some people go, 1,500 to 2,000? That's a lot of variances. This might seem like a lot, but this means that the scriptures we have are 99.9% .9 accurate. This is miraculous, guys. This means 
Because when you do the percentages, it, like 1,500 to 2 million. And then these are words. These are variances, not pages. So think about how many words are on a page, right? More than 10. So there's, of all the words, those are only 1,500. So you, you can maybe estimate there's probably, um, let's call it 100 million words, and that there are only 1,500 variances. So, and then when you, when you add on to this, the New Testament writings were copied by hand <laughs> over a time frame of 1,900 years. And yet it is still 99.9% accurate. Now, there is misconceptions because of the movie The Da Vinci Code <laughs> and other things that they would say, oh, it's like the telephone game. You know, you said it and then they said it and they missed it all up. This proves that the telephone game fallacy is, the, is that it's a fallacy. That the Bible, the manuscripts, are 99% accurate. Here's the next phrase. Many of those differences, the 1,500, would be similar to an A to an an. It's a thing called a movable new in the Greek language. That means that it's like, you can conclude it, but you don't have to. Type of a, a letter in the Greek language. None of these differences have any theological implications. So, those are the four reasons why I trust the Bible and why I build my life on it. I hope this has been a blessing to you and I hope it encourages you to take this thing more seriously. I want to end by, uh, uh, by sharing a testimony of a man named, um, by the last name Tyndale. You may, have, you may have known his name because of the Tyndale Bible, Tyndale Library. He's a famous um, Christian in history. And he made the mistake of thinking that the Bible should be written in the language of the people. You see, it was controlled by the, by the popes and they thought that the, that the Bible should be kept from everyday people. But he believed that the Bible should be given to the everyday person so that they could know God and read his word. The government hated him for it and they condemned him to death and they burned him alive at the stake for, getting, for doing the work. He did it in hiding. He escaped. He did it in hiding. Where all these manuscripts copied it by hand so that people could have it in their everyday language. And they caught him and they burned him at the stake so you and I could have this. And I just urge you, don't take this, don't treat this with contempt, with apathy. Men have died so that you could have it in your pocket. So Lord, I just pray that your spirit would convince us, God, to eat your word, to love your word, to submit to your word, God, ultimately so that we can know you and have eternal life. God, I just thank you for your word that's alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Cut us, God, as we read your scriptures. Make us into sons and daughters, God, that will reflect you in a world that needs truth and stability. If you're here and you are far from God and you need to receive the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ, you know you're distant and you need to come back or maybe you've never made Jesus Lord of your life and you feel him drawing you it's as simple as this, saying, God, I want to repent from my sin and I want to receive forgiveness that's found in Jesus. If that's you on the count of three, just raise your hand. One, two, three. I want to pray with you. Just raise your hand if that's you. I see that hand. You can put it down. Thank you. I see that hand. You can put it down. Let's just pray with them, everyone. Say, Holy Spirit, thank you for revealing your son, Jesus. Thank you for loving me and all of my sin. Today I turn from that sin. 
and I receive the forgiveness that's found in Jesus. I believe that his death on the cross, his blood that was spilled, paid for my sin so that I can be completely forgiven. And I believe that he rose from the dead, conquering death so I could have eternal life. Just take a moment, if you just raise your, just receive that eternal life. You never have to fear death ever again. Just receive it. It's a gift. You can't earn it. Let's just say this last part. Say, God, I give you my life. Every broken piece. Make it beautiful. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, guys. Thank you.